Welcome to In the Village, a Prisoner Introcast. This time we will be doing episode 17, that's the last Prisoner episode, uh, Fallout. But first, my name is Shane, as joined as almost always by John. Hello. And Aaron. Hello. And this week we have our very special guest, Mr. Jim Moon. Hello, folks. And before we get started, uh, let's tell, you, tell the world a bit about yourself, Mr. Moon. Where can um, we find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me at my own site, which is hypnagoria.com and uh, Geek Planet Online, where I uh, write articles and reviews, but uh, many do. Uh, my own podcast, Hypnagoria, which has been running a long, long time now, it seems, <laughs> to my amazement. <laughs> Yes, it's an incredibly great podcast. I've been listening to it for, well, almost four years now. Maybe as long as we've been going, I think. <laughs> anyway, we start as always with the TV World synopsis. TV World. And that reads, at, the, at last, the end of a nightmare adventure is in sight. A trial determines the prisoner's ultimate fate. And that's it. And that's it. Huh. Yeah. Oh, thank you, TV Wars, for being as... Vague as always. <laughs> well, I mean, it was a pretty big episode to begin with. Uh, it's almost like they ran out of time. <laughs> so, uh, before we get actually get started, I've, I've listened to your commentary, and I've, hopefully all of our listeners have as well. Um, now, you've, it's been about a week since you uh, watched it for the commentary. What do you guys think? Now, it's been settled in a little bit. I think John still doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, see, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Just throw me under the bus there, guys. Jeez. <laughs> I, the consolation. I, 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 I feel like it's, it's still very obvious that it was completely and entirely ad-lib. So, Jim, you were saying? You know, I saw this in, uh, what, 1984, when Channel 4 rerun the entire series, and I still don't know about the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. The open-endedness at least worked. Or maybe it didn't, since so many people are so confused and demand answers. So much so yeah. that uh, McGowan had to leave his house. That particular story, I was going to get to this later, but this particular story I don't think is true. Really? Yeah. Uh, the reason why I say that is that um, ITV, which is the station it ran on, was a largely non-network TV station which means programs could be aired at different times. Uh, and this, this actually episode was actually shown over a series of many months throughout, throughout the various TV um, stations. So the fact that you know everybody saw it at the same time and bombarded McGowan with answers, in my opinion, cannot be true, even though McGowan said it himself up to his unfortunate passing. Even though there was, as I get the figure... Um, 150 confused callers called the station after after the uh, episode aired. Only 150? Wow. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things I know for like media people and newspapers. Certainly for this period, they always used to take it. If one person rings in, 999 other people thought to ring in but didn't bother. <laughs> <laughs> so the kind of you know, my my most shows will only get maybe. Um, 10 or 20 calls and usually they're from the same nutters who ring and complain about everything so to, get, to, get, to get the number they did that is actually, it doesn't sound a lot for the viewing audience but it is it's enough to make 
studio bosses goes, whoa, that's a strong reaction. Mm. He did, however, and I only found this out um, about an hour ago. He did actually uh, did create a kerfuffle with the local council because he erected a large fence around his house without permission. Uh-huh. Anyway, let's get into the episode. And we start with a recap for the first time. God, that recap just went on and on yeah. and on and on. Yeah, it basically was just a, sh- a synopsis of the last episode. Yeah. Now, how much time was in between the airings of those two episodes? Uh, I don't, because obviously over here it was non-networked, so I don't have the, the original UK airing dates, but I do have the original CBS airing dates. Yeah, and, yeah, once upon a time aired on set the 14th of September... 1968, and Fallout aired on Saturday the 21st of September 1968, so only a week between the two. But you must remember, of course, in 1968, nobody had VCRs, uh-huh. so you know, so nobody can obviously record the TV show and to go back to it. So you know, they kind of had to have a long recap. There was also an old dodge in that around this time in a. Uh... TV that uh, if your episode was running short, your um, recap of last week's cliffhanger could concertina and expand it <laughs> in length. It was a trick we used to use on Doctor Who a lot if the episode was running short. Mm. They'd just have a longer re- a recap. And if, if, the, if they're running long, you get a very brief kind of, that was a cliffhanger, on with the show. So it could have just been a dodge to uh, pad out the runtime then. I, sus- I suspect it would be, to be honest. Um, but then again, I'm sure these other people will probably claim that every every little clip they've shown from Once Upon a Time is significant to something, and is part of the, the enigmatic tapestry that is the uh, the end riddle. Oh, I'm sure. Mm. Or something. Yeah, but it went on for about, about three or four minutes, didn't it? Yeah, I think it was closer to yeah. four minutes. Mm. So, yeah, so... Uh, we see for the first time where the it's actually given an on-screen tag of where the prisoner was filmed. Yeah. Uh, put Marion in, and um, I don't even want to pronounce that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, what is it with English and Welsh names being so incredibly confusing? Well, it's because the Welsh have a ridiculous, a ridiculous alphabet for one. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but how does that explain England? Uh, I stare pointedly at the Englishman in the, on the panel. <laughs> <laughs> the two Englishmen on the panel. Yeah. Uh, well, it is down to we have a lot, lots of uh, place names that were from um, foreign languages and Old English, and it's been mixed together, and uh, and then over time, pronunciation is often drifted away from the actual spelling. Mm. Anyway, so he's, yeah. we go. So he's taken to uh, place with a lot of hangers, and we, he's given his old jacket back. Yeah, they had his original clothes, even though they said that they had destroyed his original clothes in the first yeah. episode. Yeah, yeah. So they're oh, lying. Come on, there's a tailor somewhere in the village. Mm. Though I would like to point out the mannequin they have it on has a head that looks exactly like Patrick McGowan. That is very, very true. And he goes through into a cave set, and we see, we hear a very, very famous Beatles song. There's a lot of Beatles in this episode. Hmm. Apparently, 
uh, obviously to get the rights for the Beatles would 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 have been incredibly expensive. But the, apparently the they actually liked the show so much they allowed them um, to actually use the song free of charge. Really? Hmm. Well, that answers the question you had, John, about how the hell did they afford this? Yes, it was given to them for free. Mm. And they uh, walk through and. Sp- we see uh, there's a me- uh, big deleted scene here actually. Uh, when the bit when the butler opens the door, it's a raw iron door. However, on the other side, it's, me- it's a me- uh, metal door. There's a deleted scene where um, we have soldiers, uh, or not soldiers, frogmen. I would best to, best best to describe them as, I suppose, on little trikes. And it's a quite a weird sequence actually. And I wish. Um, someone had it, but they unfortunately don't. Um, and they're, they're on a mini road, and they say stop, and they all stop. They continue, they all continue. From then on in, he goes to the main set, and that's where we re-pick up the story. Right, right. So at the end, when the uh, complex has been evacuated, you do see the frogmen and frogmen on trikes, yeah. on trikes leaving. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like. Where, where did they come from? Yeah. They? Were they rovers handlers? Yes. <laughs> yes. We don't get a lot of rover in this episode. No, we don't, unfortunately. But we see um, we see the supervisor putting on a, a black and white mask. And then we see the prisoner having a wander through the cave set, which, of course, is exactly the same cave set that we saw a few episodes ago in The Girl Who Was Deaf. What? We're using sets. They never do that. Set recycling totally doesn't happen. It's not like it doesn't happen like four times in this episode. Yes. And then we see all the masked people um, sitting down, revolutionaries, reactionaries, administration, etc., etc. And then we meet the judge. What do you think of the judge? It was a different number, too. Yeah, it was. It was number two. <laughs> hey, hey, don't don't leave me out to hang there, guys. I leave you to hang <laughs> all the time. Uh, no, we, there was there was the debate about that, like because we were trying to figure out the name when the commentary, and I'm pretty sure, yeah, you you were right in saying that. It's just I don't know who what they were, what they were calling him in the IMDb credits. Uh, uh, supervisor, I think, or something. Like that. It was like the president uh, or something, or the yeah, the president. A little weird. To the Google. Yeah. Nope, it is, yep, it is, he is named as the president in the credits. And then he goes on a lovely long speech about uh, how uh, how he's great in the village. And then uh, we, we get introduced to the regrettable bullet, which is the lovely people on the, mach- on the uh, twisty, turny thing with machine guns. Yes, and in the corner. They yeah. can't hit anything. Yes, and then number six is presented to the committee, and he and he was told he should be referred to a, num- a number of any kind, and he is referred to as sir. Once again, they avoid using his name. Yes, sir or the man. Yeah, and then we see the reason why they were wanted that truck for evidence, and that it's brought in to the courtroom. For lack of a better term, and the, the prisoner, uh, the butler unlocks everything, and he and number two is resuscitated. Because you can just do that for some reason. Yes, because we have the technology. Yes, <laughs> we can rebuild him. 
Yes. Fatter with less hair. Almost like he went off to shoot a different movie when they called him back. <laughs> yes. Uh, for the final episode, McGurn wanted to revive the number two playboy McGurn, who had been killed in Once Upon a Time. <coughs> I decided to bring him back to life in the last episode, he explained in December 1983. I missed him. Despite his experiences shooting the previous episode months earlier, McGurn returned to the final after persuasion from Kenna. Pat tried to, me, tried to get me to be the go-between, told Chris Perry in the TV Zone special in August of 1997. I worked, I worked on Leo, but, but he didn't believe me when I said Pat had changed and called his temper. I tempered him by the thought of a series afterwards without Pat. I had no guarantee I would be on the, I would be on the same set as Leo all the time. By now, McCurran's beard has been shaved up and his hair cropped for another role, which means McGowan had to add the strange barber sequence to change number two's appearance since Theo McCurran had aversion to false beards. Or as I like to think of it, the uh, secret to eternal life is shaving cream. Yes! (laughs) And a really old hairdryer. It could just kind of fit over, you know, whatever. Screw you guys. Yeah, so he's, uh, he's woken up. And while they wait, get, while the guys working him to be woken up, we see um, number forty-eight, played by Alexis Kanna, who got a box around his name in the credits because he's so special like that. Yes, even though he did have a box around his name in his last appearance. I don't don't remember that. Yeah, but nah. he was uh, he was actually I believe he was uncredited on the girl who was death, but when he appeared as when he was appeared as the kid. In Living in Harmony, the box ran his name then. Mm. Did he? Mm. Yeah. There was any reason they ever gave him for that? Gave him, given. Uh, the only reason I could could come up with is that Alex Kanner was uh, quite a young actor at the time, and McGowan wanted to give him special credit hmm. by making his name stand out. Now, did he ever go on to do anything else? Uh, to the Google. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to the Google. Yes. Uh, according to IMDb, the last thing he did was a movie called Nightfall in 88, which was some sort of weird sci-fi thing. Played a guy named Sor. I don't, be- I don't, I don't believe Alex Kanner is still alive, actually. Uh, probably not. Died in 2003. Yeah. This is a quote by McGowan. Uh, in the mid-sixes, I wasn't totally... Oh. Uh, well, what else was going on? So McGowan on the contemporary youth movement on the BC World Service in 1996. Of course, I've become aware of it later and suppose all the crazy things that I fitted into the era to a certain degree. There were some wonderful things happening with the youth. And if only the youth had a leader, we would have had a great revolution and it might have changed the face of the earth for a while. Hmm. So, uh, number 48 uh, is introduced, and he sings uh, them bones, and he gets chased around. And drives everybody nuts. Mm. Until... That's because, really. Well, until uh, number six, or sir, stops him. Yeah, because he, like, as soon as he gets to where six is sitting, he looks up and stops. Yeah. So... I'm not really sure what to make of that off the top of my head. Uh, 
he realizes six is just as crazy as he is, clearly. Yes. And then well, he, uh, going back and looking at the episode on a whole, mm-hmm. um, there, there is something about his character about youth and revolt. Yeah. You know, because they, they mentioned that later on. Uh-huh. Um, I thought it was interesting that the guy... <gasps> sorry. That is netting. Um, uh, the member of the council who represents anarchy gets up and makes this big speech about law, which... Yeah. The anarchist of all people. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, there's, there's kind of like a three facets of, you know, uh, becoming into adulthood kind of going on here between, you know, 48, 2, and 6. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's what they were going about or if I'm just, uh, you know, flying off the cuff here, but. Possibly. Anyway. There's no easy answers to this episode, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure. Yes. Yes. And this is this is actually the quote from Canada that I was looking for earlier. Um, Canada had been approached by a producer about a film to be shot in Africa. Discussing the producer with McGowan, Canada recalled, Patrick said to me, be qu- beware of that fellow, Alexis, because his hip bone isn't connected to his thigh bone in exactly the same way as yours or mine. Wow. Really? really? Yep. Yep. I know, shocking. <laughs> uh, he's so yeah. So number uh, so we, we get an intervention by number one, and they held him in the place of sentence, which is the same tube he came out of. Yes. Now, can we talk about number one for a second? Go ahead. Well, other than the fact that it uh, looks like the bad guy from Tron. It, yes. Does anyone else? A little disappointed with number one. Well, it's one of those. It's kind of after sixteen episodes and this big mystery of who could number one be. You don't really actually have a lot of likely options other than an old number two or the little butler or Magoon's face himself. And that was kind of. Is it really number one? The way it's done is you can say, well, all right, it was Magoon all along, but this is the village. Everything is a trick. Is that just another joke? Is it was that the real number one? Was number one just the machine with the blinking? Yeah, the I'd, I'd be perfectly okay with that. I, I would as well, actually. Giant <laughs> blinking computer. Mm. Uh, Hal's more Art Deco brother. <laughs> uh. Uh. Well, one. Well, actually, I got. A, uh, I got two. I got two. No, you go ahead. I'm just saying that's that's probably a diatribe for another episode. Where we get into 2001 A Space Odyssey. I have feelings about that movie. Uh, I've got two quotes, actually. One attributed to Alexis Kenner and one attributed to Patrick McGowan. Um, Kenner recalled a uh, suggestion to Patrick, and, he, and, Pat, and Kenner said, One day I turned to Pat and said, I know, you pull the mask off and it's new grade. <laughs> <laughs> And the quote from McGowan is that uh, many people were expecting a James Bond star villain to be a mask as number one, but he wanted to resist this option. Quote, there is nowhere else to grow. Who would? It, who could it be? I wasn't going to ring up Sean Connery or Roger Moore or any of these fellas. I mean, who could it be? I don't know who it could be. <laughs> yeah. Moving on. Moving on, yes. So I feel like I feel like every time Magoo has a comment about something, it's like I'm just trying to avoid cliches. 
Yes. Because, you know, the man clearly hates romance. The man didn't want Well, it seemed like of... he, he hated romance without a point. Yes. Because, remember, he was talking about how he hated um, uh, James Bond because he was the worst spy ever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you were going on, Shane. Or, no, 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 uh, no, 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 that that was it. That's all I had. Oh, yeah. oh okay. Sorry. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. So, uh, as I said, number 48 gets put into the um, place of sentence. But first, he uh, takes everyone into a lovely song of them bones. Where he just sits back, relaxes, and enjoys everybody else singing. And dancing. Yes, and and that, that went on for a while. And at that point, he takes the, uh, taken to the place of sentence. And then we see number two, short hair, uh, with all his hair slicked back and no beard. And he wakes and he wakes up like a new man. The rejuvenating uh, power of shaving cream. Yes. And weird scientific technology. Yes. And he gives this lovely speech, and he gets asked if if he ever met number one. No one's ever met number one. Yep, and he's and he's. Uh, spits uh, into the eye socket, and that causes. Well, that was. But you're you're skipping a bit because he went on to talk about how he was uh rather pissed off that they brought him back. Yeah, and, I am. I am. I am. Yeah, he was asking if it was poison, and then they won't tell him because of trade yeah. secrets. Yeah. And we obviously the very very important man. How important he is, we'll find out later. His speech that just left John and myself in awe. Yes. I wish I had it quoted, but I don't. So, okay. Um, anyway. So, I, I know, uh, so he spits into the uh, ice socket, and all hell breaks loose in wow in the chamber. As I suppose <laughs> is the only thing I could describe it as. And and he's been t- he's been taken away t- as well to the place of sentence, which is down the tube again. Ex- exactly. And um, we see on the big screen his house. Because he, he is told he can either go. They're fixing up his house. Yeah, he can either go or be their leader, one or the other. And he's given his. He sees he sees his own car again, not the same car that we saw in the preview earlier, because I believe that was written off. So it was actually a different. Uh, uh, sorry, it was sold then written off. Get me get that right. So he sees the uh, house being. Uh, done up, and he's been given traveler's checks, a million, and some petty cash. <laughs> Seems to just be a pouch of coins. Yes. And a passport, so he can go anywhere he wants to. So the prisoner takes a stand, and tries to have a speech, but he's drowned out by everybody else. By saying I, he, he tries... Yeah, he tries a couple times to get them yeah. quiet down. Yeah, he, and he doesn't. And, um, yeah, I think there's some swearing going on here. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Actually. They, uh, I mentioned this when we were doing the commentary, but, uh, there's kind of a theme of, you know, they, you know, they claim they want him to, you know, uh, speak up and, you know, ex- you know, talk about individuality, but they won't let mm-hmm. him speak. You know, they're yeah. so, they're so caught up in what he's doing, they won't let him speak. Yeah. And even though he's talking, there's nobody to listen. Yeah. And thus, we have the episode, the entire series about individuality versus conforming. Yes. Really? Are, are we going that way? 
Really? Well, I mean, you're the one that just brought the, the idea <laughs> up, and so then that leads to the entire the entire series is about that. Yes. Have an opinion on this, uh, Jim? Well, it's like so much of things in this is there's it's really sort of turning up the symbolism to the max. Yes. Um, I find it, I find that that's one of the more amusing things. Every time he says "I," they just all start going crazy. Like that's all he actually has to say. Mm. <laughs> that's the you know the ultimate argument for the individual. Yeah. I. <laughs> mm. It's also that sort of Kafkaesque thing. Is you've got a chance to speak, but now you can't. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of um, sort of nightmare trial element to it at the same time. So it's very it's very strange, particularly with all the hoods and the black and white faces as it is. And yeah, so he... it's one of it's one of those with this episode. You know, I think the, the the burning question is not what it all means. Is how much of this is, are we? You know, or how any individual viewer, how how real are you taking this to to actually be? Yeah, are these actual events or not? But that's a it's a big overarching question for this whole finale, I think. Yes, <laughs> and unfortunately, the question to the answers are not exactly forthcoming, are they? <laughs> <laughs> so he's been taken down to the he's, uh, he's taken down uh, on the tubes. To the to what I would, I'm going to describe as the ground floor, he sees uh, number 48 in a tube marked Orbit 48, uh, the old number two in a tube called Orbit Two, and we see an empty tube called just called Orbit. Any thoughts? That's <coughs> what uh, this struck me as very interesting on this watch. The fact that I mean, when I when I first watched it, I thought, oh yeah, it's, it's it's space age, space tubes to go with the rocket, but is this what I noticed? They all are individually numbered. Yeah. For for their captives, as it were, and it's kind of. Yeah. And then then you start thinking, well, orbit. What does that mean? Is it these these are these these are bit parts of the collective they want to excise or to <laughs> to keep a yeah keep it a safe circling distance, forever going round and round and round, and never to <laughs> to get anywhere. Yeah, and the fact that they've got one. Just marked orbit. Is that for number six or sir? I sh- should refer to him as. I think we can still see six. I'd say it was for six, but you know, yeah. as he's he's been decreed, he doesn't have a number. Yeah, he just has he just has no name either. Yeah, we just haven't decided who they're going to put in tube yet. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's for somebody. We just haven't put a number on it yet. Yeah, it's the spare. It's the spare. Yes. <laughs> so he goes up and actually uh, meets a hooded figure, and he has. Um, Number one on the jacket, he's been he's uh, given a crystal ball, and in it we see the finishing sequence all over and all over again. And he's also, also the room is full of globes. Yeah. Because reasons. Yes. And they're totally not reusing the old uh, lighthouse set from the last you know, couple. Of yes. <laughs> yes. Well, that must have cost a lot of money. I mean, you're gonna, of course, going to use it in uh, two episodes. Uh. So he pulls off the mask, and we see a, a monkey face. And the and Sir pulls off the monkey face, and we find out who number one is. It's number six. And it's himself again. It's number six. He's evil twin. Well, yes. Half, or a completely crazed twin. Take a pick. Yes. Now, now, I was looking into that after we got done with the commentary, and apparently yeah. there's a few fan theories about that. Yeah. One of which being that it's actually Patrick McGowan is number one. Yeah, I've read about these. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Are we getting are we getting this meta now? Are we getting yes, meta? yes, <laughs> yes. People are getting that meta. 
We demand answers, so it must be Patrick McGowan. I don't think... Okay, fine. Just just go meta. Just be that meta. Also, he is, like, lightning quick, because he zips around there like a monkey. Yes. So, yeah, so he... Um, number one, runs up the stairs. All the while screaming and laughing. Exactly. And number... Well, sir, uh, takes a uh, fire extinguisher and starts attacking people. Him and the butler. Surprisingly effective. Yeah. Sorry? It's surprisingly effective. Yeah, definitely. Mad confusion. Everybody can get taken out by a fire extinguisher in this place. Yes. And the butler helps. His butler's firmly in his camp. Yeah. And he dresses up as a uh, nameless figure and attacks the guards outside. And he runs up. After he frees uh, 2 and 48. Yeah, yeah. And he runs up and starts setting off the countdown. Because it has a countdown, of course. Yes. And they avoid... I I do like on the the closed-circuit television how he's watching everybody outside and everybody outside is just sort of milling about, like, what do we do now? Gotta wait. What's going on? Yeah. And then number six, dressed up as a faceless figure, uh, starts attacking everybody with machine guns. Uh, to the tune of All You Need Is Love. Because reasons. Thoughts on this, people? Uh, they're juxtaposing the uh, upbeat nature of the song with the disposability of... I don't know. I think they had the rights to the song, so they were going to use it. <laughs> okay. Look, if we have a license, we might as well use it, right? Seriously, I mean, why not in our big action sequence? Where the guys on the seesaw with the machine guns actually get to do something. Although why you have machine gun seesaws, I have no idea. <laughs> oh, well. You know what? We never did find out what that stupid seesaw camera thing in the, the main office was. We never found out what that thing did. Yeah. Yeah, that's, well, that, that's very, very true. We never figured that, out what the hell was with Rover, huh? That's true. They killed Rover. You they, bastards! They killed Rover. Hey, PG podcast. <laughs> Please, we've been marked explicit in every episode. In iTunes, in iTunes already, so. That's true. Why don't we use we it? might as well use it. Yeah, why not? <laughs> so we see in it, so uh, number six and um, everybody else is attacking everybody, um, everybody in the control room, and we see uh, an evacuation of the village filled with stock shots. And shot loops. Yeah. And badly edited in helicopters. Yep. Uh, I think I know what you're referring to, actually. And um, that was actually come from a deleted scene from Many Happy Returns. Really? Hmm. Uh, it was the scene we already saw way back in Arrival. You know, at the end of Arrival, he's, I referred to this in, in Many Happy Returns. Um, but in, in, in uh, Arrival... Uh, he tries to take off in the helicopter and the scene changes from Port Marion to an open field. Um, it's, actually, it's actually an exterior shot of the helicopter trying to lift off from that episode, from many episodes. Hmm. And uh, everybody's dead and everybody's dead in the control room. Because they shot everybody. Exactly. And we find out they're actually on a wagon. Well, you know, that, the thing is mobile. That's true. And uh, so the 
butler is driving the wagon out. And we see some more scenes of them evacuating the village. As the you know, old uh, vacuum tube countdown continues to go on. Yeah. And then we see the countdown complete. And we see that the rocket taking off. Because number one was a rocket? Uh, possibly. I was also, gonna, also the, I, the, the figure of number one who ran away from uh, six went up further into the lighthouse, and they didn't follow him. So it means he's still up there. Mm. So they just shot that guy in his face. Yeah. And we also see some very, very badly edited vis- visual effects. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we see Patrick McGowan's own Bentley. Oh, wait, that's maybe a little bit further on, but... No, 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 no. I'm talking about the very, very bad visual effects. Yeah, uh, very bad matting, like they did with the helicopters. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, with the rocket, you mean? Yes. Yeah, bleed. Yeah, bleeding into uh, number six's house. Because. Yes. So yeah, so the so we see Rover as well, shrinking. And dying. And dying. Yes. We miss you, Rover. Mm, we do. Even though, um, the last shot we see is the is the village still standing, so it hasn't been destroyed by the rocket. So why did they evacuate? Uh, very good question. Because rocket backblast, I, I, I don't know. Stuff. True, but you, you would have thought it would have done some damage to the buildings. <laughs> it's very strange, isn't it? What is the purpose of the rocket? I mean, um, I was rewatching some of the early episodes, and in the second one, the chimes of Big Ben, um, I rec- number two we have back in this, says to number six that you know the village is um the prototype for the world after the inevitable nuclear confrontation <laughs> you think it's that was that part of the village plan of the rocket's going to go up and it is going to actually annihilate everything else yes good point there my friend good point uh we see um a rose voice pulling up next uh when they're all on the motorway and everyone's inside uh, the tra- the uh, cage, all dancing away, and uh, Magoo's character uh, is making tea while moving. Because that's safe. Yeah, it's exactly house and safety nightmare. And that's where we see Magoo's Ben. Yeah. Which is a really nice car. Yeah. And uh, number forty-eight. I don't like to refer to numbers now, but oh well. And number forty-eight gets out on the motorway, and he's trying to thumb a lift. Because that's safe. Mm. And if you notice, he's uh, he's trying to thumb a lift in any direction he can. He can. He, he tries one way, then the other. So is that um, is the prisoner trying to ask us? Number forty-eight uh, embodies direct, direct the directness. Can't say the word now. The directionlessness. Yep, yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Of youth, tries to go one way, then the other. Didn't know where to go. Maybe, or maybe just 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 get me anywhere but off this motorway. <laughs> true, true, true. I was trying to add symbolism to what was going on, but <laughs> <laughs> but thinking at the time this is written and the way um, 
number 48 he's dressed with his, you know his hippie bell and his yeah. you know far out clobber yeah. it is kind of you know hey man it's the journey not the destination yeah. sort of ethos going on and yeah. no matter how far you run you're always in the same place you always are man yeah you know like, i think it sort of ties into that as well of uh, yeah. He's the free, he's the free wandering spirit. Doesn't matter where he's going, as long as he's going somewhere. Uh, yeah. And we're away from you, old man. Away yeah. from you. <laughs> uh, Certainly, I'd be getting off that. Just, just get me away from these fucking lunatics now, <laughs> as far away as possible. I don't care where. Oh goodness. Um, so we've got. Um, uh, they actually get to London, and they get pulled over by a cop. Yes, they drive. To London, even though it's been shown earlier that the village is on an island. Inconsistencies! <laughs> how, how do we know the village is on an island? What was it, many happy returns? He gets into a plane, and they're flying off the coast of Africa, and it's like, that's it! And then they eject him out of the plane. But but the pilot was a village agent. Okay, so, so the pilot is going to have some ridiculous virtual reality over the entire bubble of a jet fighter plane that McGowan's looking at it for the entire time. <laughs> I, I think that's a bit further than a stretch that, that even we can take here, Shane. <laughs> I'm just trying to put holes in the theory. Yeah, that's a very, very tiny hole that I'm patching up with duct tape right now. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so they get pulled over by the cops. Um, I mean, the, the only hole that could possibly be in this is if there's a giant underground tunnel somewhere connecting the two but that's going to be one ridiculous underground tunnel so i'm not buying it okay so yes pulled over by cops and yes. mcguin seems to be there explaining everything to the cop in some manner maybe yes and uh the mcguin's character gets out and heads towards the houses of parliament which is uh beautiful houses of parliament is a beautiful building and then the butler and number six Chased after a bus. And apparently that was a real bus they were catching. So that wasn't scripted. Uh I didn't say that. I'm oh. just I'm just I'm just saying that they might have wanted to do it and they just saw it and did it. They saw the they wanted to do it and they saw that might have seen the perfect opportunity to do it, but it, but it might have been it might have been what you said, it was unscripted. I'm not sure on that, to be honest with you. Uh, then we see uh, uh, then we see the credits. Uh, Alex is kind of on the motorway, thumbing the lift, uh, and McGowan uh, gets to his house, sees his car, gets in his car, drops off the butler. Yep, and the butler go- we see the hearse, and the butler gets to the door, and the door automatically opens. Did you notice the door number as well? Number one. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I went back and I checked uh, um, Arrival. You yeah. never see the number in Arrival. But we do see it in many happy returns, I believe. Yes, we do. And then we see an uh, on-screen uh, thing. Prisoner. Not the prisoner, just prisoner. And then we, uh, we see the McCurn going into um, what can only describe as work. He must be either a civil servant or a... Uh, or appear, and we see a mistake, an editing mistake. How so? Uh, we, as uh, McKern is entering the House of Commons, or the 
or the Houses of Parliament, I should say. Get my terminology right. Uh, we hear a thunderclap, and that wasn't meant to be there. There was they were rushing the episode for it to air, and they accidentally inserted the thunderclap there, and it wasn't meant to be there. Oopsie. And the editor, whose name I've completely forgotten now, um, Steve. was <laughs> no, it was actually a, a wonderful, a wonderful lady actually. Oh. Um, Ladies can be Steve. Possibly. Uh, said that she was scared stiff about, you know, about the episode. Oh, about the mistake, because she thought Magoo was going to take her head off. <laughs> but Magoo actually loved the mistake, so he kept it so... Uh, and the fact they couldn't do anything about it either, because it was so late in the production. And then we see uh, Magoo on the airstrip again, uh, driving towards the camera, like he has done in nearly every single episode. And that, ladies and gentlemen, after 17 episodes, is the end. Hooray. Thoughts? But it's not the end. It's the end of this series. So thoughts? This is also the only episode we don't get that uh, McGowan's face and the bars coming, clapping down all the... That's true. Uh, Speaking in 1983, McGowan noted the last episode did not end. The door opened of its own accord, exactly it had in the village. We went in, what was inside, you never saw that, did you? We never got out, we, we never escaped. So wait, he's still in the village? Uh, everyone is a prisoner of something. You, you, you escape when you're released, I suppose by death. It's the, it's the final release. Uh, as to go, uh, as to how and when you go... What thereafter depends on what sort of prisoner you are. When asked by Roger Goldman if the experiences in the episode mirrored the religious concept of purgatory, the Roman Catholic Magoon replied, That was always at the back of my mind for as long as I can remember as a child, you know. So I suppose there was a certain symbolism in that, and unconsciously so, a certain amount, a certain amount of it did emerge, even the total fallout. We know what that means, don't we? Hmm. Well, I suppose it's telling that it's undertakers who take him to the village, isn't it? Hmm. Ah. So has he been dead this whole time? I'm saying nothing. <laughs> well, it's rather if you take the entire series to be kind of in some purgatorial afterlife, then kind of they could they are still in the village. The village can have its own Westminster. <laughs> It can break all the laws of physics, and and pilots can have world-spanning holograph displays. Yeah, <laughs> it, w- it could explain a lot, though. Uh, is it satisfying? I don't know. Um, well, we we don't get any answers. I mean, we we never find out who runs the village. We never find out what rover is. Mm-hmm. You know, we never find out any of the answers on some of the technology that they show. Very good point. Very, 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 very good points. It was all a metaphor, clearly. The entire series was a metaphor. Or yes. they ran out of time while McGowan was off filming another movie during what was supposed to be their season break, and he came back and had to wrap up the show really quickly because, again, they had run out of time. I tend towards the real world <laughs> explanation, but that is the most probably unsatisfying, as is as is often the case of why things happened as they did. This is a, this is a production budget or <laughs> or a deadline looming, and people just do something weird. 
uh, on, on that, actually, very good point. Patrick McGowan originally planned to write the final episode of the series in early October, while in Hollywood com- uh, competing at Station Zebra, but the production schedule negated this. Instead, Alex Kenner recorded in the Village uh, magazine. And he wrote the first draft on an airplane. I saw it when he got off the plane, and we saw him, and, and then we went on doing it, it over and over again, and changing and fixing and doing. And we, then we saw it on set. None of it worked, so we started all over again. And apparently he wrote the entire uh, final draft in 36 hours. Also, wasn't there a thing about a lot of people uh, ad-libbed their dialogue for this episode? Uh, a few people. Yeah, I think the main um, thing is actually the um, uh, the president. Mm. I've been some of his dialogue, yeah. Uh, I don't think I've actually got a specific note on that, to be honest with you. But yeah, I believe I believe it was actually the president who did quite a bit of his dialogue. Mm. Uh, but anybody got any notes before I move on to the uh, foreign translations? I got nothing. Nope, go on. Uh, in France, it was dubbed into the outcome. Dubbing changes to dry bones changed number 48 dialogue from Hear the Words of the Lord, Hear the Words of the Lord into I Am the King of Fools. Uh... It was uh, it, uh, in Japan. It was known as the conclusion. In Germany, it was known as a masking, and in Italy, it was first known as the escape, then the revolt. Hmm, interesting. Mm. So, unless everyone's got a uh, anything else to add, I'm going to call a commercial break. We miss you, Robert. It's funny how some days work out. You wake up, get dressed, wrestle the tube to get into work, sit behind a counter dealing with stupid people and their boring problems, and then a time traveller in a police box turns up and whisks you off into time and space. Come on, Jaden. Tardis is waiting. The Doctor's universe is insane. Good thing I've got some insane people to see it with. There's Destina, a time lady who seems like she's young, but she's really not. This is stupid, Destina. Well, you shouldn't be following Daleks into some secret hidden lair where you're likely to get yourself exterminated. Because that's what Daleks do. A crazy computer that lives inside Mary Poppins' parrot-headed umbrella. But I want to take me somewhere. <laughs> not to mention the creepy visits we get from Death. Grim Reaper himself, who seems to have gone a little weird if you ask me. I am not an apparition, I can assure you. I am the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns. Then there's a doctor, that mad, insane Time Lord, who's been travelling around the universe forever, fighting all number of monsters, villains and God knows what else. So, Jaden, are you coming? Come on, Jaden. 
Jaden. I promise you, you'll love it. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Do I sign on to an infinite universe full of wonder and magic and things I'd never dreamed of? Like you even have to ask. Doctor Who, The Crossover Adventures, an unofficial audio series available for free download from iTunes or crossovers.org. And welcome back. And uh, it's uh, time for emails. And emails. Exactly. Exactly. And we have one from uh, John E. Bella. And I believe, uh, Jim, you have that one. I do indeed. And John writes, I've really enjoyed this intro cast series and I am going to miss it. I've enjoyed The Prisoner since I first discovered it in the mid-90s, and it's great that technology allows us to interact with people around the world with common interests. Glad I found your podcast and that you completed the series. For better or worse, here's my feedback on the final episode and the series. The music in Fallout is probably the best of the series. Sorry to see it doesn't seem to be available on iTunes. In Once Upon a Time, number two indicated that one of them had to die. It seems like that would be a no-win scenario for number two. Either he'd die, or the agent they are trying to break would die. I'm assuming, in part because of the die, six, die, near the end of that episode, that six breaking would have been an acceptable outcome. If he broke, he would be theirs, and the number six we've seen fighting the village for 16 episodes would be effectively dead. It wouldn't make any sense for number two to win if the prize is dead, unless they plan to revive him like they revived number two. Was two really and truly dead? He feels like a new man and looks like one too. When chicks, when six checked for a pulse, he seemed dead. I'll go with the very heavily sedated by the drink. Also, it is interesting to note that although the person presiding over the assembly seems to understand number one's messages, brackets without a big phone, then number two says he was second only to one. That means he would have been over the assembly president. Yet number two is no longer seems to have any power. Finally, after refusing to resign in Once Upon a Time, he removes his badge. Although he and number 48 will still be referred to by their numbers, as can be seen on their orbit tubes, he has finally quit his former job within the village. He is laughing like a madman, but he can now be himself. It seems that the inauguration may be a final attempt to keep our hero a prisoner. They are certainly appealing to his ego by asking him to lead them or go. The prisoner collects his passport and makes sure it is in order. He takes the millions in travellers' checks, keys to his home and the petty cash, which he checks out on the podium. After watching this series, it's clear to me that the prisoner had no intention of staying. He was just acting like he might in order to get these items and to see how things would play out. He'd stated before he'd leave and come back and destroy the village, along with number two. Well, he'd escaped the village, come back, killed number two. That just leaves obliterating the village. Which brings us to his speech. Is this in the original script by any chance? I'd actually love to hear what he seemed so impassioned to say during his address of the assembly. All I can make out is, I feel that despite and an occasional word. He seems to be talking about how he survived the village's attempts to break him. They drowned out his speech, then thank him for it. It seems that, no matter what leaders say, society doesn't care what any one person has to say. We see orbits for number 48, number 2, and just an orbit with no number for the prisoner. This This last orbit is opened by one of the masked robed men as the prisoner walks by, 
it appears they may not actually intend to give him control of the village. Instead, they place him in his orbit after he meets Number One, who is surprisingly shorter than the prisoner. Number One turns and hands the prisoner an orb. The prisoner sees iron bars close over his face repeatedly. Although we do not yet know the identity of Number One, the handing over the orb seems very symbolic of the prisoner having been the one holding himself captive. The prisoner smashes the orb, indicating his intention to break out of this prison. He unmasked number one, only to find the person who was putting him through all of this was himself. He locks the insane side of himself away, takes out the robed men and the guards, sets the rocket to launch with the insane number one locked inside, and to the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love, proceeds to mow down the assembly and remaining guards with automatic weapon fire. Well, and a little help from his friends. Regrettably, it seems that the only way out for the prisoner was with lethal force. Sadly, even Rover dies. We learn that there are quite a few number of helicopters readily available in the event evacuation is required. Where have they all been stored? As the prisoner returns to London, the young man, formerly known as Number 48, is dropped off. First, he tries to hitch a ride going in one direction, and when that fails, attempts to get a ride in the other direction. He doesn't seem to care whether he, where he ends up, as long as he can be himself. The former number two approaches Parliament and hears the chimes of Big Ben. Fitting. It seems he is ready to resume his role in society, but with his own mind now. Perhaps he can make a difference doing what he feels is right. Which just leaves us with the prisoner and his valet. The president told the prisoner that he was free to go and his home was being made ready. It appears this included installing an automated door and surveillance equipment in his home. I don't think the village was really prepared to let the prisoner leave unless he agreed to rule them, in which case the surveillance, the surveillance would be more a security measure. Or did they think it was possible he might somehow escape the orbit they had planned for him? The valet expects the door to open automatically, although not as it did in many happy returns. Credited as the prisoner, McGuin drives away, back to the very first shot we saw in Arrival. What is it about all that? The best I've come up with goes back to the president saying, All about you is yours. To me, the series starts with a secret agent on his way to resigning, second-guessing himself. Why am I doing this? Should I sell or give the information that is disturbing me so much to another world power? Would it matter? Whose side are they on? Are they all the same anyway? The events in this series, and the recurring actors, often in different roles, are just different scenarios he imagines in his head on his way to resigning. How he reacts to each of them defines who he is by the time he is driving to resign at the end of Fallout. Now he knows who he is, and that he will keep the state secrets he has learned, even if he doesn't totally agree with them. After he resigns, it's time for a holiday. However, he will always be a prisoner, because he knows himself and knows he won't betray his country's trust. The village will be always with him because, to some extent, he will always be at odds with himself, fighting against himself to do what is right. Was number six John Drake? The girl who was death included Potter and possibly John Drake from Danger Man. That means the prisoner was John Drake, right? Not really. You see, Danger Man was a television show he had seen. The prisoner incorporated those characters into the fairy tale he told the kids. That's all. It doesn't mean the prisoner was John Drake. In fact, the prisoner imagined the setting for the village because he had seen it in the Danger Man series as well. 
I know this has been a lengthy email, and I hope you're all still with me. I have just a few last comments I'd like to make about the series. Numbers have become more and more important in society. The Prisoner was ahead of its time. It is very interesting to me how well this series predicted that people would become less and less individual and become identified more and more by numbers. Social security number, bank account number, health, insurance, identification number, etc. If you've seen the Troyer interview, you've heard McGowan admit that somebody wouldn't have had the energy to constantly fight against society's pressure to conform. The Prisoner, or at least the better half of the episodes, is an excellent allegory of how important it is to find oneself, even if the everyman won't be able to influence society much, if at all. The best he can hope is to be the best person he can be. Watching Fallout reminds me how sad it is that Mr. McGowan is no longer with us. As evidenced by the recent remake of The Prisoner, we'll never see another series like this again. Thanks again for all the terrific discussion you've had on the series. Wishing you all the best, and be seeing you, John E. Baylor. Thanks very much, John. That's really, really appreciated. Any thoughts on his email? Really a lot of interesting points on kind of the the allegorical meaning. Mm, Um, Yeah. Daddy could have all I been in his to, head while he's driving to resign. <laughs> I wanted to interrupt when he was th- when when he got to the point about numbers because I just I, I thought about uh, the because you know, it's another podcast I listen to that but you know in, in our fair city they're not na- people aren't they're they're not names they're all known by their policy number mm. so I just kind of wanted to to throw that in there as, as another example when he was talking about societies known as numbers not by name but yeah he does he makes a, a lot of interesting points. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I, I think uh, it's a it's an interesting idea that you know everything in the village has all been inside his head, but um, doesn't that sort of retroactively kind of deflate some of the drama that should be there? I mean, if it's all in his head, there was never any danger. Yeah, there is, I mean, it's a problem that it was all a dream ending, isn't it? You just kind of you can't even think. Well, well, why did I bother watching this? It didn't. It didn't matter. There was no stakes. Hmm. Um, I think I think it's he raised an interesting point that in the end, after all the the cunning ruses, the mind games, the duplicity, he breaks out the village with automatic weapons and mowing people down. Yeah, and I think that's very interesting because you know McGowan was very against um, in de- from back the Danger Man days of of having a spy being a callous, cold blooded killer, and I think he did have a stricture that you know John Drake never used a gun. Yeah. And it's kind of it's kind of interesting that you know the prisoner eventually he has to use lethal force as, as yeah. John says, and the juxtaposition actually with the the Beatles song if you think when this was you know airing in the days of hippies and peace and love but also you know the the horrors of you know the likes of what's going on in Cambodia and Vietnam, and I think you know he's McGowan saying yeah all you need is love but you know sometimes some machine gun fire might be handy. Yes. Indeed, indeed. I can't say anything about uh, if it's a dream or not a dream because that's just going to be a debate for another episode, and I don't want to. And I don't want to spoil. But uh, moving on to uh, Nutty's email, and she sent. She actually watched um, Once Upon a Time and Fallout together. So she so she emailed this literally about an hour or so after she emailed us originally for. Uh, once upon a time and Nutty writes had to watch this episode right after the last one 
Okay, so this answers so little question for me. I can't help think that we're dealing with an unreliable narrator. So the prisoner thinks of himself as number one, very Luke Skywalker of him. But it makes me think he's keeping himself a prisoner. He's a prisoner of his own mind all this time, and basically had a mental breakdown. That's one thought at least. The whole court thing was weird, and why is number two having to go through a makeover? That was odd. I did like seeing that he started as a prisoner, it was my guess, but my guess about the prisoner not wanting to kill was dashed when there was a lot of killing in the last in this last episode. Sure sure it was a bloodless T V killing, but we know what happened. I did like seeing the rover dry up. Not sure what to think of the series as a whole. Was this a so self-indulgent project of Petra McGowan that I just don't understand what he was getting at? Nutty. Well, thanks very much, uh, Nutty, for that one. And we ha next on our list, we have Harold's email. Who has Harold? I've got Harold. Excellent. All right, Harold writes, I was not disappointed by this episode. Apparently, it was not the case for most viewers back in the 1960s, according to Fallout of Fallout clip on Daily Motion. It seems that Mr. McGowan had to go into hiding after this aired. I believe we already talked about that, didn't we, Shane? Yeah, we did. We did. Yeah. We did. David Chase was smart enough to to go into hiding before The Sopranos final aired. <clears throat> Excuse me. It should not come as a surprise that the finale it was another allegorical take. I know that my previous feedback expressed surprise that it appeared that they were going they were going to explain everything, but I think they explained enough. You just have to piece it together. First, I love the use of music in this episode. The moment they entered through the metal door the to the cave corridor and all you need is love was when my hair stood up. You don't hear the Beatles on other people's soundtracks, and this choice was perfect. There was nothing, there's nothing you can know that isn't known, nothing that you can see that isn't shown. Of course, this was a recent hit when the show aired. Could it have been a number one? <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if the Beatles were fans of the show. Which they were. Um, certainly the Prisoner Yellow Submarine, the Yellow Submarine movie have certain similarities. Number 48 singing Dry Bones first struck me as an odd choice, but then I came to like it. Like All You Need Is Love, it fits in a few ways. It's an African-American spiritual. It comes, it brings the issues of slavery versus freedom. It also connects the different parts into the whole. It also works with its repetitive rhyme and lyrics which keeps getting faster and faster, create a impression of a crazy world spinning out of control. What is it about? I think part of the beauty of the show is it's open to interpretation. I think people could argue different theories quite persuasively, and then I've mulled over a few. The biggest reveal is number one. I leave open the possibility that Six or his lookalike became number one during the transfer of power. We have seen enough body duplicates and body swaps for that to be possible. <clears throat> But then I came to the conclusion that this was all a Freudian passion play, that number one is Six's id. I feel that the other characters are just extensions of Six himself. For proof to that, I point out to point out number six and forty eight call the president dad. The two call six son. And the way that the assembly can't help but uh, fall in together singing Dem Bones with forty eight or joining the six when he's making a speech. The reveal of number one is like pulling off the layers of the subconscious. We see the primitive animal and the mad face of six in the end the trailer is able to pull out of the submarine depths and right back into london which only makes sense if this has been a psychodrama there is certainly a christian subtext too most obviously in the lyrics 
about hearing the word of the Lord. The trio of rebels, including the formerly deceased two, is some sort of holy ghost. Uh, several crucifixion poses and a temptation scene. Now that I've seen everything, I've read a few things saying McGowan didn't know... Uh, sorry, I lost my place. Didn't know who number one was until he sat down to write the final script. I can't believe this. I think the surreal, the surrealism throughout the series points to a psychodrama battle over Six's mind. I think there is, uh, it's all there in the opening of each episode with the exchange of who was number one, you are, comma, number six. At the end, Six proves his identity, his individualism, and over the force, over the force conformity of the village. Or has he? I know that the assistant dons the robes labeled identification, immediately becoming anonymous. Each statement, uh, each attempt stands out, oh, yeah. <clears throat> Each attempt stands out before the assembly is droned out in conformity. Six ends up back where he was in the beginning. Is he back where he started? Or back where he belonged? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> there we go. Is he going to return back home or move forward? It is ambiguous. Has he learned anything? Has he changed? I'm doubtful that he has, but he is more, but he is even more self-con- self-confident in his own ex- exceptionalism. Watching this show, and particularly this finale, finale, has been a very rewarding experience. I would like to thank Bob and Shane for starting the podcast, Aaron, John, Sergeant Drano, and all the other guests for contributing to your wonderful podcast. Uh, I can see why this has been a cult favorite for nearly 50 years. I give this 10 out of 10 dry bones. Be seeing you, Harold. Uh, thanks very much, Harold, for that. And uh, next email is from Dan. Dan. And Dan's pretty quick and short. All right, so this is from No Go Away Spotify. Dan, well, now we know where Seinfeld got its inspiration for its season finale. A farcical courtroom scene, the reappearance of characters we had thought we'd seen the last of, no lessons learned, and in the end, a show about nothing. Be seeing you, Dan W. I don't know about that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's just what he wrote. Yeah, that's true. You're wrong, Dan. No soup for you. <laughs> Nazi. <laughs> Super Nazi. And I also believe you got the an email from Davia as well. Yeah, I do. Uh, it's from Davia. I love this episode. I love its celebration of chaos. After watching this series along with the podcast, I really appreciated the callbacks to prior episodes. The young revolutionary is the killer from Living in Harmony. Killer and young revolutionary are in quotations, by the way. Uh, number uh, second, the quote rocket is designed as a lighthouse. End quote. And the girl who is death, while here in the real world, a missile goes off. In the above episodes, number six's mind is being manipulated. I wonder if the acknowledge, uh, if the knowledge of his manipulators was bleeding through. Uh, number six faces a tribunal to help deal with his revolutionary actions, just as he did while being in the village during change of mind after being declared unusual. Uh, love that episode. And then uh, fourth, uh, number two is declared a revolutionary after disobeying number one and taking number six for the ultimate test in Once Upon a Time and then, quote, resigning through his, quote, death. I loved how the members of the tribunals, those sitting in judgment, were so easily led and they danced along to the Neckbone song. I also enjoyed the state down from number six. The I guess maybe it's supposed to be stared at? I don't know. Uh, the state is it's it's written state. I'm not sure if it was meant to be stare or, uh, or stare down. I would go for stare down. Uh, I think I think it's supposed to be stare down. Uh, but it's a state anyway. Between number six and the judge in the red robe, while number six is being celebrated for his individuality, one nitpick and John and I 
thoroughly tore this one. Uh, I always, I always thought it was weird that they could drive to London when the village had always been presented as an island. It's a win for the revolutionaries because they go back to living their lives. Thanks, for, thanks very much for that. And of course, uh, just because we finished all 17 episodes doesn't mean the podcast is over. What? We'll be, the yes, podcast yes. is I mean, over? Awesome. Yes. I will be re- uh, revealing what we're going to be watching next at the end of the show. But if you want to email us, you can always email us at theprisonerintracast at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. Just search for the uh, In the Village A Prisoner Introcast. And also on Twitter at the prisoner intro uh but uh ratings and as jim you are our guest i will let you go first now hold on are we rating the episode or the series as a whole do both two ratings in one episode i know shocker (laughs) no 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 breaking all the rules today i know uh well the series as a whole i mean um i i loved this when i first encountered it on a a complete re- repeat screening in the early eighties, and uh, it's a series I've you know I've gone back to many many times. I mean, it's only seventeen episodes. It's not a huge commitment to to go through again, and it's just it's so rich, richly written and textured and acted and performed. And <laughs> there's, there's so much here you can just draw, you know, pull out of it. Um, you know, it's one of those. It is one of the great enigmas in your TV because of the last episode. The last time ourselves, I have a bit more mixed feelings about because I feel it does just play the symbolism card and to the point of kind of it almost chokes you on it. Um, and it, it kind of it would be nice if there'd been a puzzle you could have you had a chance of solving. <laughs> but at the same time, if you do had a different answer, the series wouldn't be as interesting. <laughs> I think part of the fun of the prisoner is that it you endlessly circle around different questions and a different viewing pushes you in a different direction to a different interpretation. Um, so the, the finale isn't sort of my, I don't think it's a perfect finale, but it's probably, it's probably the best all round finale that, <laughs> that keeps working. <laughs> if it had just been, Oh, it, it was run by the KGB. Everyone would go, Oh no, you know, that would be truly deflating. Excellent. Uh, so, what do you rate this show and episode out of ten, my friend? Um, I'd say the, the, the series as a whole is definitely a strong nine. Okay. Uh, uh, the last episode, I think I'll give it a seven. Okay, cool. Uh, John. Ooh. Um. Yeah, I, I think it's a series finale. This really shows what happens when you don't give your people enough time to write a definitive answer to all the little uh, threads that they were shooting out because you can tell, you know, right before um, McGuin left to do Ice Station Zebra, there's a definite, like, leading of different threads that, you know, certain episodes are more important than other episodes and, you know, but it's all kind of connected to a big thing. And then, you know, he, he goes on that break and everything goes downhill because he's not there and they get you know, hacked from two seasons to just the 17 episodes. Um, so it leads us, you know, maybe that's, you know, the good thing about it because we don't, we're, we're left wondering what exactly went on, whether any of this is really real, you know, is number six, John Drake is number six, the dude from ice station zebra is number one, Patrick McGowan. Um, so I, I think that's, you know, again, part of the strength of the series. Um, 
as far as a series wrap-up, I don't think this is very good. I mean, I enjoyed the episode thoroughly, but I, I don't think it was a very good wrap-up to the end of the series. I think they could have, you know, used a few more answers as to what was going on, rather than it all just being an allegory for conformity or rebellion. Um, so as far as the episode goes, I will give it a very strong number of 7 out of 10. Um, as far as the series on a whole, I'm going to give it a very solid 9 out of 10 black and white masks. Excellent. Uh, Aaron? Uh, I'm a little torn uh, between it for this episode between liking it and being so thoroughly confused that I wondered why the hell they even bothered. Um, <laughs> because when John and I sat down to watch it, I, I'm, I'm, I, we got you know halfway through it, and the end is just kind of like we gave up on budget and trying to talk. It's just all just shots, and I'm, I understand that maybe they were you know trying to go with the allegory, but at the same time, it it kind of feels like they just gave up near near the end. That's what it felt like to me that they just kind of gave up in the end, and you know it may have been all the technical stuff that finally blew up in their face, and they finally was like, all right, let's just wrap it up. And so I definitely agree with John that it's kind of a you know throwaway wrap up, and so it kind of seems to leave it a bit more open-ended and I'm not an entirely huge fan of open-ended leave it to interpretation endings personally. Um, And as as a whole, I can see why this is a a cult classic. It definitely provides a lot of, you know, a commentary and discussion and back and forth of maybe this is this. No, you're wrong. It's this. And I can definitely see why, how it create tons of camps and arguments over the order in which you should actually watch the series and, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Uh, so overall, uh, I give the final episode here a six out of ten, and uh, the series as a whole a very solid eight and a half. Excellent, 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 excellent. So forced to me. What do you say, Shane? What uh, say you? <laughs> I I unmutual, unmutual, unmutual. Sorry. Um. I love this. Uh, love the show. I mean, when I watched it uh, for the first time in the late nineties, I I watched it in a in a weird order. Uh, I'm sure I've said this on the podcast before, but when uh, they released it on VHS, they released two box sets. So I saw the second half first, then I saw the first half. Um. So and I I fell in love with it from the moment I first saw Checkmate, and then I watched a lot of them in the one sitting. Um. So. Overall, I absolutely adore the show. Uh, this episode, I have to be honest with you. If I, if if someone comes up to me and said, "What is one of the perfect um, stylish interpretation of, of TV in the sixties?" It's this and uh, the house that Jack built from the Avengers. Uh, so overall, the series, I'm going to have to give a nine and a half out of ten, and this episode, I'm going to have to give. Nine. And that comes to a final score of who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we're not we're not as organized as the as the Idget cast who actually keeps sc- track of the scores and yes, I should, it all out. Yeah, I should have done that, but I, I should I should have done that. I should have done that. Uh, My, welcome to maybe, the maybe could... cast where the points don't matter. <laughs> the questions are made up and the points don't matter. Oh, yes, wait, not this series. <laughs> eh, the series do. I should I should do that for a later episode. Um, but anyway. Uh, what's next? Oh yeah, uh, I tell you what, you're going to be uh, we're going to be talking about in our very next episode. What are we going to be talking about, Jane? We are going to be talking about The Simpsons. 
It's not what I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> well, this just took a left turn into Albuquerque. I mean, we will be talking about the episode of The Simpsons, The Computer Who Wore Men's Shoes, which was the uh, which was the sixth episode of The Simpsons' twelfth season. Also, uh, we'll be talking about we're going to be doing two uh, two episodes of a, and another episode of a completely different uh, television program, and we're going to be doing two point four children's uh, series five episode five. Say what now? Uh-huh. <laughs> British comedy program two point four children series five episode five. We're doing that all for next episode. We're doing, yep. Yeah, they're, they're both for in half an hour. All right, you're gonna have to supply the logistics for this. I'm gonna be supplying you with links after the episode, after we finish recording. All right. And I'll also be uh, putting um, uh, links to the episodes on both the f- uh, main Facebook page and the spoilers group as well. Okay. So yes, so that's what we're going to be reviewing in Wait. two weeks. T- so, so do we actually get access to the spoilers group now? Uh, uh, no, because we still got the uh, remake to do. Shit. <laughs> sorry. No, you're not. You're never sorry. Yeah, he's gonna he's gonna get off the line with us and put on his black and white mask and start laughing, start singing <laughs> old Southern revival songs. <laughs> so yes. Uh, I just want to thank the band Do Not Forsake Me and My Darling and uh, who supply us, who's kindly allowed us to use our music for the intro and outro theme for this podcast. You can always find them at do not forsake.com. Uh, has anybody got, else got anything else to add before we say goodbye? Nope. <laughs> Good. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Do you want to actually, before, before we say goodbye, uh, Jim, do you want to give us a run through of your podcast again? Uh, yes, you can hear me on my own podcast pretty much nearly every week. Uh, the Hypnagoria podcast, which deals in weird fiction of all kinds, from movies, TV, to comics. And you can find that on Geek Planet Online, on iTunes, or it's a very nice subdomain, which is hypnobobs.geekplanetonline.com. Excellent, 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 excellent. And I said, please check Jim's podcast because they are, uh, they are an amazing uh, series of podcasts. Um, but uh, I think that's all of it for tonight. So say goodbye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Be seeing you. Be seeing you. <laughs> Me bone. Well, it's Zika hook, crack den, dry bones. It's Zika hook, crack den, dry bones. It's Zika hook, crack den, dry bones. Now here.
Drive, boom, step, boom, step, boom, step, 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 drive, boom, step, bo